0: No, um, it it shouldn't be. It's an exciting one. That's what it is as we uh, launch into our new series in the Book of Nehemiah, as Jonathan has said. And it is a a significant book. It may not be a book that we turn to regularly. It may be a book that, uh, if you've been around church for any length of time, you may have heard Nehemiah preached on. Um, My my experience of Nehemiah has been when there's a building project to do. Well, let's let's look to a book of the Bible which is all about a building project. Um, But there's so much more that God has to say to us through this wonderful uh, portion of scripture, his inspired, timeless, eternal word. And so um, I do just want to begin, if you could fit my laptop on, thank you, Tim. I do want to begin just by reading uh, the first few verses of Nehemiah. If you have your Bible there or have it on a device, please do uh, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter one. We're going to consider the whole of the first chapter uh, today, the, the first 11 verses of this great book. Um, but as Jonathan said, what I would love to do first is start right at the beginning, And then actually help us to see how Nehemiah as a book and as a story, as a narrative, as a piece of history fits into the whole redemption story of God. And so we will be doing, I'm going to try to, my mind works well by visualizing that as a timeline, uh, hence this stuff. So hopefully that will be helpful for you um, if you're able to read my handwriting. So let's begin just by reading the first two verses of Nehemiah, this wonderful book in God's word. So let's hear the word of God together. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, I was in the citadel of Susa. Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. Okay, we'll pause there, and straight away we can see from the opening of this book that we are being welcomed into quite a particular story uh, about a specific moment in history uh, and there's a clear context that we need to understand. Otherwise, I think if we, if we just dive in and read this book as if it is, as Jonathan said earlier, as if it is written directly to us, which of course it is as God's eternal word, he speaks to us through it. But to understand what he is up to in this book, we need to understand how it fits into his grand story of redemption history. So this is God's eternal and inspired word. It is not just an interesting historical narrative. It's not just a personal memoir of this man, Nehemiah. It is so much more than that. So what does God have to say to us through this book? Well, to help us with that, it is always good to know how the portion of scripture that we're reading fits into uh, the wider story of God's word. And so it's important to ask questions like, who is writing? Uh, Who is the human author of this book, Inspired by God? When are they writing? What are they writing about? What's the context that's led to this writing? Well, we can answer some of those questions very quickly. Nehemiah is written by Nehemiah. We can tell that right from the very first line of this text, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. Wonderful. Question one answered. When are they writing? Why are they writing? Well, this starts to unfold the more we delve into the book. So we continue through verse one in the, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year. Okay, so this is a very specific time in the course of history. The month of Kislev is about the ninth month in the Jewish calendar. We're talking somewhere around November, December-ish. So it's winter time. We're in the citadel of Susa, and it is the 20th year. Well, the 20th year of what? Well, we, we come on through chapter two. We learn that it is the 20th year of the king who Nehemiah is serving. And that king is a man called Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes is the king of the Persian Empire. And the Persian Empire is a huge empire. It it encompassed most of uh, Turkey, Lebanon, Israel, bits of Egypt, bits of Iraq and Iran. This was a huge empire in the ancient Near East. And it was a massive kingdom and a mightily successful one too. And, And knowing that we are in the reign of Artaxerxes' time helps us to place an exact date and an exact context on what we are reading. And so we'll come on to this a little bit more as the book unfolds. But from what we know, in the 20th year of Xerxes, that puts this early portion of Nehemiah in about 900, or sorry, 440 BC. So 400, just over 400 years before Christ comes, Nehemiah is writing about the events that took place then. And and that is not just an interesting number. That's interesting because that shows us that Nehemiah is a recording for us some of the final portions of history in the Old Testament. So about 400 years before Christ means that these are some of the final historical records of what is going on in God's people at this time. Now, Now that might seem strange just because of the physical placement of where we find Nehemiah in our Bible. So if you manage to find it quite quickly there and you opened it, you notice there's a lot of the Old Testament still to come. There's all of the Psalms, all of the wisdom literature, all of the prophets still to come. But from a historical point of view, this is recording some of the last moments of um, Israel uh, as we know it before Christ comes. And that's because in the the library of Scripture, so we start off with the law. And so we've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. This is going to be a test. We should have done this as a quiz. Uh, Then after the law, we move into history. And the history books are then clumped together as the library of Scripture was brought together and so we have judges no sorry first of all we have Joshua Joshua is written about 1400 BC so you're talking a thousand years between Joshua and Nehemiah so Joshua judges then Ruth then 1st and 2nd whoop 1st and 2nd Samuel important books for our family 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles uh, and now when we get into this portion of history we're getting into this stage where the writers and God is telling us about the history of Israel as the human kings are put in place. Now, the, I say human kings because Israel had a king. God was Israel's king, yet they asked God for a king. And so in 1 Samuel 8, well, 1 Samuel 8 through to maybe 10, uh, God gives them the first king and the first king is called Saul. And Saul's reign is a little bit up and down like most of the kings. And after, whoop, after Saul comes David. And some of the, again, there's highs and lows in David's reign, but one of the key things that happened towards the end of David's reign um, in 2 Samuel 6 is when he brings the ark of God to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem becomes the center of God's people, becomes the, the capital of Israel. It becomes the holy city, the city of David. And so Jerusalem is established, but David doesn't build the temple. He wants to, but he doesn't. That job was left to Solomon, David's son And in 1 Kings 5 through to 8-ish, we see the details of Solomon building the temple. And it is a majestic temple. And it's a majestic temple to represent the majestic God who Israel worships. And the physical temple was to represent the physical presence of God with his people. And so this is a really significant moment in the history of this nation. And so Solomon builds the temple, but just after Solomon's reign, things go south again again. Solomon's reign had ups and downs, but after Solomon dies, then the, the, the kingdom splits and the kingdom splits into the north and the south. Um, and so you can read about this um, in First Kings uh, 11 to 12. And in the north, 10 tribes follow uh, a guy called Jeroboam and they go north. And in the south, uh, two tribes follow Rehoboam. And Rehoboam is Solomon's son, so it's the southern kingdom that followed the Davidic line, that messianic line. God had promised David that he would establish an eternal throne, and it is only the southern kingdom who seemed to to follow that through. And so the division of this kingdom is another really significant moment in the history of the people. God continues to speak through prophets like Elijah, for example. In the southern kingdom, he speaks Jeremiah and many others. And so God is still at work in both of these places even though there has been such division in them. And then history continues. And if we pick up the north the northern kingdom, um, generally speaking, the northern kingdom just have bad kings. That's a sweeping overgeneralization, but that's the case. And so they continue uh, to do what what, what they thought was good in their own eyes, as we read in Judges. Um, But in the northern kingdom then, in 722 BC, Assyria one of the the mighty superpowers of the day, Assyria come and attack and besiege. And it takes a while, but they besiege Samaria, that northern part of the kingdom. The north, actually, I should have mentioned, maintains the name Israel. And the south becomes known as Judah. And so in 722 BC, the Assyrian army come in, take over Samaria and take the people to exile. And as the Assyrians did, they then moved foreigners into the area to make sure that there wasn't an uprising. And so effectively, what you have in 722 is the end of the northern kingdom of Israel. In the south, they hang on for a a while, a good nearly 200 more years. Uh, The Assyrians try to attack. There's different sieges and different bits and pieces. But eventually, in 586, and I should say, actually, in the south, it's not all bad kings. There are some wonderful kings. Hezekiah is an example. Josiah is a wonderful example. People who remain Uh, sought to be faithful to God and his people, and his teaching. In 786 BC, we have the eventual collapse of Jerusalem at the hand of Babylon, the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. If you remember when we looked at Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar is the king in charge of Babylon, and he comes in and establishes, uh, uh, sorry, and uh, exiles Judah and exiles Jerusalem, takes pretty much everyone, leaves the poorest of the poor, but takes pretty much everyone else to Babylon. And as he is beseeching and destroying this area, he destroys Jerusalem. The walls are broken down, the temple is destroyed, and so things look really bleak. Now, in and around this time, this guy, Jeremiah, who's a prophet, you can read his book through the Old Testament. He's been prophesying and telling the people in the southern kingdom, if you don't turn, then the Babylonians are coming. Of course, they don't turn back to God, so the Babylonians come. But... And differently than the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, the people of Judah are given hope. Jeremiah says that God, will, God is saying that this is not the end of you, that Babylon will have a time limit, that you will return to this place. One of the most well-known verses in Jeremiah is Jeremiah twenty-nine eleven. I wonder if you know it. Can anyone tell me Jeremiah twenty-nine eleven? I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Those verses come in the middle of the prophecy about the return to Jerusalem. Here is what the rest of those verses say are wrapped around those verses. Jeremiah 29, if we read 10 to 13. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed, and that's not accidental. In chapter 25, he had also mentioned 70 years coming to an end in Babylon. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And so there's this hope given as the people are taken into Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar. And the Babylonian empire then, because God has said it, it happens. Uh, They get taken over. And in 539 BC, uh, Cyrus, who's the king of Persia, this another superpower that raises Cyrus comes. And Cyrus is important because God had said that Cyrus would come. In the middle of Isaiah's prophecy, chapters 44 and 45, Cyrus is named. God says, I'm going to raise up Cyrus and he's going to free my people. Now, Cyrus isn't a follower of God. He's not, a, he's not, a, he's not a, a person from Judah, yet God uses him mightily. So in 539, Cyrus takes over this empire. And a year later, Cyrus has a very different understanding of how to deal with exiled people. And so he lets them go back home. He lets some of them go back home, certainly anyway. And the return home takes some stages, but the fact is that God has been faithful. His people are returning to the place that he had said would be theirs. And so Cyrus comes, uh, frees some people. You can read about that in Second uh, Chronicles 36, the final chapter of, of Chronicles. And now that, that sort of brings us up to the historical book of Ezra. And Ezra and Nehemiah are very often twinned together. They're essentially the hundred-ish year history period of the return to, to Jerusalem. And so in that story, we hear of the first people going, uh, being sent back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And that happens under the leadership of a guy called Zerubbabel. Zer, uh, I haven't put enough Bs in there, but you get the impression, Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel goes back and re, with, the, with the task of rebuilding the temple. And we read in Ezra that that is completed in 516 BC, now that should ring some bells because the people were taken into Babylon in 586 BC. The temple is completed in 516 BC, <laughs> 70 years later. Isn't God good? Isn't God faithful? This is what these big historical sweeps of the Bible teach us this is why I get excited about it. So the rubble goes back and rebuilds the temple uh, and it seems good, but actually it doesn't seem like much else is built. It doesn't seem like the people are settling very well. Even Jerusalem as a city isn't built. Even when Nehemiah goes back, there's nobody living in the city. It seems a bit desolate. So the second um, return happens in, with Ezra. And Ezra takes it, goes back with a bunch of people in the 460s-ish BC. And we know that Ezra is a significant character. So Zerubbabel has been sent back to build the temple. Ezra, we read in Ezra um, that he is a man a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses in Ezra 7 is what we read about Ezra. So Zerubbabel was sent back to look after the temple. It seems Ezra's going back with the priests to serve in the temple and to reinstate the law among the people. And so you'd imagine then that that it sounds like all signs seem to be good, but there's still something lacking. And so whenever Nehemiah sends for a, receives the message that we heard earlier about this report from Jerusalem, Things don't seem to have gone well. There's 15 or 20 years until Nehemiah receives this report and he is devastated by the report that we read read in chapter 1. So there's optimism, but there's so much still to do. It seems that the people of God might be starting to return to the place of God, but they have not yet fully embraced the purposes of God. And that's part of what Nehemiah is all about. And this is the... This is the setting into which Nehemiah then questions these brothers who came back from Judah, questioned them about the Jewish remnant and who had survived the exile and about Jerusalem. And let's read the report that he hears in in verse three of chapter one, and we'll see his reaction in verse four. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. See, and perhaps with all of this historical background, we can maybe start to understand Nehemiah's reaction now. See, Nehemiah is not just responding to the news of a building project. He's not just responding to the news of a resettlement program of exiles. He's not just responding to the news of a story of national pride and restoring the city. No, the physical state of Jerusalem is symbolic of the faith of the people. So the walls of the city lie in tatters. The faith of the people is not strong. God's people were not in God's place. They were not fully fulfilling God's purpose. So Nehemiah sat down and wept. For some days he mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And we'll come on to see the prayer in the rest of our time in a few minutes, but let's not skip too far ahead. Nehemiah hears this report and he prays. As we said earlier, Nehemiah is sometimes known as a man of action and that he is, he is that, but he's not only that. He's often cited as a really effective biblical leader and and he is that, but he's not only that. Nehemiah is sometimes known as a book, about the rebuilding of the walls of the city. And it is that, but it is not only that. See, ultimately this book is about rebuilding and restoring, but not just rebuilding and restoring the walls. It's about rebuilding and restoring the people. It's about rebuilding and restoring them as the people of God, people who know their God, who worship their God, who commit to serving their God again. So yes, it's about walls, but the building of the walls finishes by the end of chapter 6. And there's 13 chapters in this book. So there's more going on in this story than just wall building. And that is why I think this book has so much to teach us today. As we read this inspired section of God's word, let's recognize that God has much to say to us through it. He has preserved this book. He has included it in his grand story of redemption. Because ultimately this story from 400 years before Christ came is part of our story. It's part of our story as God's people today. And so wherever you find yourself on your, on your journey of faith, if you want to call it that this morning, perhaps you've, you've observed faith in others but never claimed it for yourself. Perhaps you have claimed Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you are boldly and courageously following him today. Then wonderful. Perhaps you know Jesus as your Savior, but, but it feels like the, the wind has gone from your sails a bit. It feels like there's a risk of just drifting through the spiritual motions. And maybe that's got something to do with what we've been through in the last couple of years with COVID. Maybe it's something completely different that has distracted your heart and sapped the joy of your salvation. Well, wherever you are on that spectrum in your walk with God this morning, I pray that our time over the next few months with this wonderful book and in this story will help us all know the rebuilding and restoring work of God in our hearts and in our lives. See this, my, my prayer is that he would show us what it means to be his people Living in his place where he has called us to, wherever that might be. Boldly living out his purpose. God's people in God's place, living for his purpose. You see, this is good news for us, wherever you are in that spectrum. We know from Philippians 1.6 that God who began a good work in you will carry it on until completion. God is active. God is still building. God is still restoring. And so regardless of your your age or your stage in life or your stage in faith, let's look to him to hear how he can continue to rebuild and restore our hearts and our lives for his purposes, for his glory. And my prayer is that those are some of the things that he will teach us as we look at this wonderful story in God's word.